Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life led tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four and the letter U com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. I have all all my notes have HTML text, but I only see the source code now, so I need to parse them uh, a little bit. Just just read the source code to me. That's fine. Yeah, there's a lot of B's and P's in there, so I'll, I'll answer in Python. <laughs> okay, uh, that's your favorite programming language. It's the one I'm trying to learn at the moment. My son is trying to teach me because I. I still do all my statistical analysis on SPSS, and uh, he says. Oh, what's that? that? Yeah, I've never <laughs> heard of SPSS. Is that SP SPSS? Long time ago? I, um, no, it's still very commonly used in the social sciences. It's um, it's IBM's uh, standard platform for um, manipulating data in the social sciences. It's very good. Um, you know, it's just a database. Um, but my son is trying to uh, persuade me to switch to. Um, R or Python. Yeah, I always struggle with the pandas there, isn't it? Panda, pandas, the uh, the the layers, are the um, um, the arrays that you can build. That always boggles my mind. Yeah, the whole thing is very complicated, and it doesn't really suit my intellect. But I feel that makes it a good exercise for me. Yeah. So I I've been reading um, a chapter from your book, and I've been mm -hmm. watching your TED talks. And I find it really interesting the way you you look at the world. And I think we, we are quite a bit kindred spirits in this. And um, I think what comes out in the book and also in your TED Talks is how you use your experience being out there in the world, traveling to a ton of countries and observing what's going on in these countries. And then I, I have something very similar. And I talked to James Wilcox last week about that. I, I When I go to a new country or even a country I haven't been in a while, my first thought is usually how can I jumpstart economic growth, right? Um, and it's obviously not necessarily something that necessarily wipes with the locals, but it's something where I, immediately my, mind's, my mind jumps to um, when I'm in a new country. And I think you used that experience um, brilliantly and uh, came up with a, with a way of thinking, and I want to learn more about this, that's given you millions of views on YouTube and on the TED Talks. Um, tell us a little bit about it and how did, how did you get to the central tenets of these new ideas that you've got? Um, 
Well, I've been advising governments for, for 20 or more years, and um, I'm a generalist. I'm, I'm, I'm not a specialist. Um, what I advise governments on is very broadly engagement, how their country can engage more productively with, the, with other countries, with the international community. So depending on circumstances and depending on the country, and depending on who I'm talking to, that could be something fairly commercial. It could be um, tourism or foreign direct investment promotion uh, or, or trade. It could be something a bit softer. It could be about cultural relations um, or public diplomacy. Um, it could be something quite hard. It can be about security and defense. But basically, it's all about how countries can take better advantage of the opportunities that globalization throws up and the international system throws up so that they can ultimately offer a better life to their own citizens, treat their own territory with, in a more responsible way, whilst at the same time providing benefits or at least doing no harm to the world outside their borders. So for a long time, I've felt that the gold standard of good governance in this age of advanced globalization has to be the ability to harmonize your domestic and your international responsibilities. And that's something that most countries don't even think about, let alone, let alone do well. So I, in, in, the, in the first few years when I was um, advising countries on this kind of stuff, the subject that I found coming up over and over and over and over again, and it was also something I'd written about because I was interested in it too, was the whole question of national image. How is this country perceived in the community of nations? And this kept on coming back and it kept on turning out to be not a superficial issue at all, but a really fundamental one. And the reason why it's so fundamental is basically because image is really all that countries have got. It's such a busy, crowded world. <coughs> um, when we're looking at this age of advanced, complex, interdependent globalization, the stuff that you buy, the people you deal with, the people you hire, they could come from almost literally anywhere on earth. And because nobody is an expert on 200 plus countries, we make our decision on the basis of prejudices that we've held probably for most of our lives. The kind of place we think Germany is, the kind of place we think America is. And on those simple childish prejudices, we base our decisions about where to go, where to invest, what to buy, who to hire, and so forth. So you end up with this really curious situation where the flows of billions, if not trillions of dollars are actually governed by ill thought out, out of date, probably inaccurate prejudices. And that was why, ironically, I coined this term nation brand because I said that the images of countries are a little bit like the brand images of products. They're a sort of shorthand for what we believe about that product and they guide our decisions. The trouble is that um, obviously the consequences for a country can be very serious. And if you've got a weak or a negative image, Everything is difficult and everything is expensive. It's a structural deficit. If you're a country I, with a... I, I really like the idea that you, how you set up the good country index. So uh, for me, it was a bit like the Skytrax. Um, maybe that's the wrong comparison, but a bit of Skytrax of, of the um, country industry, so to speak. Mm. And um, from, from what I understood, you, you question... Um, individuals all over the world who had a certain idea about that country that either are travelers, frequent travelers, or people who had business in a specific country. And then you compile that image, right? 
Um, no. No. Um, what, okay. what you've what you've just described is something different. What you've okay. just described is 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 another survey, um, which I which okay. I publish, which is called the Nation Brands Index, okay. which I do in partnership with Ipsos Mori, who are a big international research company. Mm -hmm. um, the Nation Brands Index is, in fact, as you describe, it's an opinion poll. So we speak yeah. to thousands of people around the world, and we use their perceptions to measure the images of countries. The Good Country Index will maybe come on to later. That's something completely different. It's not a measurement of perceptions or opinions. It's a measurement of real behavior, a measurement of reality. So the Nation Brands Index, um, yeah, it's a it's a poll, and we end up with this uh, with this kind of ranking of which countries have the best, most powerful images, but in an enormous amount of detail. Um, so I sometimes call it the index of ignorance because okay. it's perceptions, not experience. Well, well, one thing you know that that it's one of those things that always occurs to me when I go to a country anew or I haven't been in a while. It's kind of this concept of a USP, you know, that's that's a marketing mm -hmm. term. It's a unique selling proposition. Mm -hmm. So that is partially a marketing argument and it's partially an argument where you say, what, what are the intrinsic, um, the advantages of this particular economy that could either be its culture, it could be its people or any combination mm -hmm. of this. It could be sometimes luck, you know, we, we perceive the, um, the richness of many, um, places in the Middle East with sheer luck, right? Because there's so much oil, they literally, they only have to do is call um, BP and uh, live up. Um, they, they do more than this, but they can just literally, um, without any technology investment, they, they would be rich anyways, when you think of Qatar. So uh, that's, for, for me, um, that, that's kind of what I'm immediately thinking. And I keep asking people in each individual country, kind of as my own informal survey, and sometimes I feel some countries don't have enough identity. They, they're too random. They, they don't really know what is their USP. They don't know what is a competitive, comparative advantage. And they also don't know how to appear to others. Um, just on economic terms, but often, you know, politics play an even bigger role. Yeah. I think that's right. I think the majority of countries have very little sense of mission. Um, they just adopt, the politicians tend to adopt just a kind of standard repertoire of things that politicians have to do, um, which is to keep their people reasonably happy, reasonably secure, and reasonably well-fed and reasonably prosperous. And it seems to me that in this age of advanced globalization, you really need to be a bit more strategic than that. Um, and so the kinds of questions that I always ask of governments that I'm advising are rather different. I, I ask them questions like, what is your country for? Um, you know, if the hand of God should slip on the celestial keyboard at 3 a.m. and accidentally hit delete and your country was no more, who would miss it and why would they miss it? Um, yeah. why, should, why should people feel glad that you exist if they're not your citizens? And I think those are the kinds of questions we should be asking in the 21st century. And this is my modern interpretation of the rather old-fashioned idea of grand strategy. How do you fit in? What's your, what's your purpose? I think this is this is marvelous, and we. I just talked with Marthy, Marcy Powell last week, and we talked about education, and we both agreed that the the question everyone should ask themselves, you know, how can I make the world a better place just by myself? You know, or, what what are the things I can influence from my point of view, where I think I have enough leverage, and you know, technology gives us a ton of leverage. One YouTube video is going to have two hundred million views and can change the, the world literally. Yes. Um, what are Although, those if things? I may just may I just jump in just for a second, Atos, yeah, because sure. there's a slight difference in emphasis here. Because one of the things I've started saying to countries is, don't try and do this on your own. 
Um, okay. Because the kinds of challenges that we're talking about, why would somebody feel glad that Slovakia exists? Well, Slovakia may well feel that it's got a particular expertise in tackling climate change, for example. But the, the thing that I spend a lot of time trying to argue the government out of is this idea that they then have to try and fix climate change on their own, because that's stupid and wasteful. And they'll overlap with other countries and the end benefit won't be as good. So I say to them, look, remember, this is not you against the world. The first thing you do is decide what you want to fix. Okay, you want to fix climate change. The second thing you do is say, who are you going to do it with? Who, it's this kind of agile collaboration, I think, is the way the world ought to work. I sometimes call it entrepreneurial multilateralism, but it's such a shit expression that I've stopped using it. Um, but you know what I mean? The idea that you I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. I think you're, you're really onto something there. And I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to see your thought process there. And the one thing that I immediately noticed, and I think we should get a little deeper into to, to what your core mission is, um, but the Good Country Index. But mm -hmm. one thing I immediately noticed is there is this, this one side, and maybe we can call it a dualism, but I think there's more factors. But I feel on one side, we have this competition. We have the individual nation state who tries to do the best they could. It's kind of Adam Smith's idea. Everyone just does what they, they want in their own private interest, but eventually mm -hmm. works out to something good. And on the other hand, we have this big idea of collaboration, um, which I think in economic terms is we, we take technology that someone else invented, or what we have this now in software a lot, where we basically copy the best solution possible, work with as many people as we can align, and then create something with way better leverage. Um, yeah. But it creates way, has needs way more coordination. So we have to like think on these two layers at the same time. Yeah. And I think this is where you where we are, where you're, when I understood your TED Talks, I think this is what you wanted to encourage, right? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I think humanity, uh, the progress of humanity, the story of humanity is basically one of three ages. The first age was the age of conflict, when we were basically nation states were fighting each other for, 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 for blood and treasure, um, for territory. Um, and then mercifully, after the experience of the First and Second World Wars, we moved into the modern age, which is the age of competition. So we're still fighting each other for advantage. We're still trying to have winners and losers at least we don't kill each other in such large numbers as we used to um but that's progress however it's not sufficient for the age of the grand challenges for climate change and pandemics and all the rest of it we now need to move into the third age which is the age of collaboration which doesn't mean we don't compete anymore it just means that we're wise about how we mix collaboration and competition the, as I often say, uh, competition is only a problem when it becomes the only altar at which we worship. And that has been the, the problem for the last 60, 70 years. What we need to start doing now is to figure out how to make the fundamental culture of governance a culture of collaboration. Collaborate first and then figure out how you compete on top of that. It works perfectly well. Industry has been doing that for decades. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 quite a wide topic. And uh... One thing that that is just my gut feeling, and uh, that's just a, that's a personal note. You know, I I grew up in Eastern Germany, which was um, basically governed by the Politburo in the Soviet Union, far far away. There were a couple of decisions that Eastern Germany was allowed to make, and there were a couple of decisions that citizens were still allowed to make. But generally, it was a very top down system. And the idea of the Soviet system, and we we, we can talk about the execution, which was um, way less than than perfect. It was generally thought of as an idea, and that's that's the Karl Marxian idea, that you take something that is is something better for everyone involved. So you 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 get rid of certain political divides that are clearly there. 
Mm. And then you institute a system that seems better, right? And, and was mostly carried by the intellectuals um, early in the times in 1920s, 1930s, um, irrespective of the where, where you were in, in Russia or in the US even. But then there was this, this the wide, I think it came out after the Second World War, especially that you felt like there is a lot of policies that were instituted to, to do something positive, but actually created the opposite. And somehow mm. the, there wasn't enough flexibility in any of the system involved that it could change. So I think the idea was still to work together through the, I think the, the execution was quite different. But I always felt it's, it's one of those cases and I lived through it just a few years of my life. So I, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert per se, but I always felt it had so many downsides that especially because it lost all this flexibility of competition, nobody nobody had an incentive to do better than they already did, right? On paper, everything was, was good on paper, but nothing was good in practice. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, and I think this is, this is the experience of the last 100 years, it's not something, it's not something I would, I would I wouldn't prefer it, let's put it this way. For all its faults, I think this idea of competition has given us so much flexibility and we are able as citizens, but also as countries to kind of choose the model that we want. And I'm, I feel like now we're going the other way, right? So we are going, well, we need more of a League of Nations. We need more more ideas that are seemingly more efficient from the on, on a UN la- uh, layer, right? Yes, I, I don't see the culture of competition going away anytime soon. Um, I mean, politically at the moment, there is undoubtedly a rising number of countries that are framing international relations as a game of winner takes all, um, as a sprint to the finish. I mean, you know, Donald Trump with his America First was by no means the only leader who was insisting on the idea that the national interest is the only significant interest. Um, I don't know. I, 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 it's very, very difficult to say, broadly speaking, which way things are going. But um, it seems to me that um, to try to measure the respective merits of competition versus collaboration is futile. They're both fundamental instincts of the human species. Um, they both have their qualities. They both carry their risks. And wisdom surely consists in us being able to mingle them in the most effective proportions. And as I say, um, industry, the automobile industry back in the 1970s uh, pioneered this approach. They, they, they even had a name for it. They called it coopetition, where auto manufacturers would work together and share supply chains, but they would end up being fierce competitors in the showroom. And that works. I just think that that kind of experiment is long, long overdue for nation states. I think we should give it a try. And to some extent, we do. But uh, we are fighting against the fundamental culture of governance, which, as I say, is, is, is basically one of achieving ascendancy over each other. And it's been that way since the Treaty of Westphalia. I mean, the, you know, the operating system that the planet works on hasn't had a major upgrade since about 1912, actually since about 1684. Yeah, yeah, we could, we, that's definitely a very European idea, right? So the the, the idea with the small little states, the little, um, I think it was originally born out of the feudalism, right? So it was even smaller, and then it, it moved up to the nation mm-hmm. states. Um, but let's let's go back for a second, and I think you 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 start with a slightly different thesis: um, is that we have these massive issues, right? That we feel like we we, we grapple with, and they seem to overwhelm us. Climate change is one of them. Um, mm. Migration, um, modern slavery. There's a bunch of things that either have been existing before as a threat, or a relatively new, um, at least on a, as a major threat, terrorism, mm. and. W- w- 
what would you think would help? I mean, there is the 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 idea that people work together more and that they they think about other people, right? That they are looking mm -hmm. outside the box. Um, mm -hmm. But where would you where would you put the next level? Do you think we should abolish the nation state, or should we we should we transfer powers from the nation state? How how does this go on? Like, what is the the political um, solution for for some of those problems? To, to be honest with you, um, I never had very much enthusiasm for those conversations about how to reshape the world system. Um, okay. Well, that's not quite true. I used to have a lot of enthusiasm for them. And like many of us who are interested in these things, I spent, in fact, wasted many, many hours in intense discussions with people where we mapped out a new future for the world. We talked about different forms of governance, making the United Nations more democratic and more accountable. Uh, abolishing the Security Council, doing this, doing that. And it took the longest time before it eventually dawned on me that all of this is just a waste of time. Because in the end, at this level, at the planetary level, there is no sufficient authority to impose a new system. Um, we still we still operate on the basis of national sovereignty. And above the level of the individual state, there is no authority apart from violence, which is luckily, as I said, going out of fashion. So, so you can come up with the most brilliant idea for replacing the United Nations, but if you haven't got the power to impose it, then what's the point in having the conversation? I am much more um, a... Well, we, we convince people eventually to sign up to it, right? That's kind of well, voluntarily it, it, sign up to it, kind of like the European Union. Yes, eventually, but experience shows that this this, this takes centuries and, and we don't have centuries. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I pursue the realpolitik approach. Um, I think we have to work with the system that we've got. And it's not so very wrong. Um, it's the way that we consider the nation state that's really the fault. We still, as ordinary people, I don't mean as policymakers, but as ordinary people, we still regard the nation state as being the ultimate tribe to which we, to which we feel our ultimate loyalty. And that's the problem. Somehow humanity has to transfer its sense of belonging to the entire planet, otherwise we're screwed. Um, and that's the challenge. I like this analogy a lot, and I think you, you, you I saw you, you speak about that. The, the, the way we, we, we have this idea of that we belong to one singular nation state as a passport, right? And uh, mm. like I myself have a couple of different passports, and I know some of my friends have four or five different citizenships, so they get really confused. And for for one of my friends. He told me, you know, I, I grew up in, in eight different countries. I have four different citizenships. I have mm -hmm. a bunch of different passports. I really can't, can't say if someone asks me, where do you belong? What, what, what nationality mm -hmm. are you? You know, I can mm -hmm. give them the list, but I can't pinpoint this to one point, which mm -hmm. is a default answer typically, right? So it's typically you, you belong to one nation state and that's people want to put you in this box and say, okay, this is the typical experience of a German, a, a, someone mm -hmm. from the Netherlands, a, a Brit. And then they want to they want to use this, and I think this is this is a very helpful tool on average, to 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 use this as kind of they they overlay the, the the typical experience that they know from this country, so they are more prepared for what you're going to say next, right? Yes. But this is a very outdated system. It's a very lazy system. Um, one of the things I say in the book is that um, most prejudice or racism. Um, is not so much the product of ignorance as people often claim, it's more the product of simple laziness because it's so much easier to categorize, to generalize people than it is to particularize them. And yeah. I, I think most, most of us these days, and it seems to be getting worse, typically regard um, the human species, we reduce it to the level of, of, a, of a game of chess. 
where we've basically got six different pieces um, and two different colors. And the, the, type of play, the type of piece that you are defines your role in the world and your attitudes and your behaviors. So if you're a castle, you move this way. If you're a queen, you move that way. If you're a pawn, you move this way. And it's so much easier to have to deal with six stereotypes than it is to deal with eight billion individuals. The reality of the matter is if you've been alive for more than five minutes and you've observed humanity for more than five minutes, you will realize that there are as many uh, types as there are people on the planet. It's much, much harder work getting to know people individually and understanding their individual character and their individual motivation. And it's so much quicker to say, hey, you like, you're like that because you're black. You're like that because you're white. You're like that because you're male. You're like that because you're LBGTQ+. And we resort to these stereotypes out of pure laziness. I agree. I agree. This is, I think it's a default mechanism, though, from a, and it stems from, a, from the desire to reduce complexity, right? And mm. I, I think our ancestors did relatively well with this because otherwise we wouldn't be around, right? So we probably wouldn't have made it until the 20th century because it, it does give you an advantage because you can basically, you, you don't have to talk to anyone. You can just um, you can just use your limbic system that, that's basically right there and doesn't cost you any processing power um, to figure this out. But I think the complexity of the world has gone up at least seemingly. Mm. And what, what's, what's interesting to me, and I, I've been discussing this on prior episodes, what happened I think it was since 2015, since since Facebook mainly changed the, the algorithm to instead of a following algorithm, we have an engagement algorithm. Mm. And it seems <clears throat> that there's a very small number of, like you say, um, the chessboard types um, that actually are supported by the algorithm. And the algorithm looks at engagement. Engagement is either very positive, very negative reaction to whatever you see in front of you. And it seems like it has, has the tremendously... Um, in, in, it has accelerated how we we put. Uh, this is my observation. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. We 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 see in a in a fraction of a second. We look at the headline. We react to it. And only these articles, from relatively small number of actual publishers, they create in our minds and they accentuate these stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't want to blame just social media for it, but I think social media has made it worse in the last five years. And it wasn't it wasn't much of an issue thirty years before that. That's kind of my gut feeling. Part of the uh, part of the problem with humanity is that we're victims of our own curiosity. We have a very, very powerful inbuilt tendency to assume that every experience we undergo and every message we receive is learning. And we absorb things as if they were learning. And we all too often don't distinguish between sources of information that wish us well and wish us harm. And so everything that, that, that reaches us in the outside, from the outside world, and it's a lot of stuff these days, we absorb as if they were lessons. And we learn things even if we stop to think for five minutes, we'd realize these are things we shouldn't be learning. These are models we shouldn't be adopting. These are values we shouldn't be absorbing, but we adopt, we're like sponges. We're walking sponges and we adopt and we absorb everything, which is why we're such easy victims for deliberate manipulators. Uh, like some of the social media giants. We don't know how to resist information. Yeah. Well, they, they say this about entrepreneurs and I, I think now what happened the last two years, I think it's it's just getting a little better now. 
last two or three years, especially in the US, is that we, we, we are stuck, we're stuck in this echo chamber. So people were literally not interested in any other opinion, just the one that confirmed their own opinion, which they obviously only had of Twitter, right? And it's not something they came up with their own and did some research. No, it was some, something they read and then they forgot about almost six months ago. And then they just seek a confirmation for the same thing. Um, but that's just the pleasure principle, isn't it? I mean, that's one of our main drivers. You, yes. you, go, for the, you go for the stuff that makes you feel good. I um, love the endor- the endorphins that come out of it. I mean, I, I you know even even knowing that this is manipulation, I still hmm. love the endorphins when I go to Twitter. Like I had yeah. trouble getting withdrawing from Twitter. Um, I'm much better hmm. now, but I I must say that <laughs> that is a tough process. These endorphins really they're like coffee, if not better. Yeah. I mean, when I when I read the views of of uh, people who have very different opinions from mine, different value sets, it causes me a great deal of discomfort. I, it, it makes me feel it makes me feel unwell. I have to force myself to do it. It's not really surprising if the vast majority of people just, just stay away from it. They do the stuff that reinforces their prejudices and therefore makes them feel good. Yeah. Well, we have, on the other hand, as you say, this, this huge sense of curiosity, right? And it seems in times of, of, of when we have enough to eat, when we feel our, our children will be better off than we are in times of where we feel like things are improving in the world when there are mm. people very optimistic. And I felt that was a strong period, like 2009, 2015. We go out and explore the world. We're curious. We want to see as many opinions as we can get. And we, we want to see where are the opportunities to, to be a part of this new world, right? Mm-hmm. And then we go back into these pessimistic phases where we, we are kind of like this chimpanzee mother and we, we everyone who's not from our tribe, we, we just bite them out and try to kill them. <laughs> and I think we, we, we have both of these things in, in our genes. And it seems mm-hmm. like we, we go through these manic, manic um, depressive phases. And I think we just came out of a very depressive phase. I think it's just getting better now. I feel this here in San Francisco where, the, where everything was shut down obviously because of COVID, but people got extremely depressed. And I feel... They, they're just just seeing the light again, so to speak, right now. And they, they want to be part of a community. They, they, they stop outside and that, mm. talk to someone else with, with, with a dog. They talk to other people in the coffee shop. That hasn't happened in years. So I'm really surprised it's finally getting better. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, a pretty simple principle, isn't it? If you deprive people of one of their most fundamental pleasures um, for a long time, they're going to cheer up when you give it back to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that we do, um, we do, we do on the whole, uh, the, the mood, the planetary mood does vacillate. And I see this in my research. What I think I'm measuring is people's um, perceptions of other countries. But actually, what I see tells me far more about the mood of the human population than it does about what those countries are doing or failing to do. Some years, everybody feels more positive about all countries. Other years, everybody feels less positive about all countries. So that's quite a surprising result. You would sort of imagine that if you were measuring how people regard countries, that they would all go all over the place, depending on what they're doing. And if a country's behaving itself, it'll get more popular. And if it's being aggressive, then it will get less popular. That's not it at all. The images of countries move as a cohort. They move together. So it's actually got nothing to do with how they're behaving. It's to do what I'm actually measuring accidentally is the mood of the human population. And the most interesting thing about the mood of the human population is that over time it gets better and better and better. And ever yeah. since I've started measuring this back in 2005, there's been a continuous gradual movement uphill. Um, everybody on average likes all countries slightly more than they did the year before, year after year after year. Sometimes it goes down, but then it always goes up again. And the general tendency is always upwards. 
that's the trend. Now that's fascinating. I it's one of the things that makes me feel unfashionably optimistic. I feel that's extremely positive. Yeah, that's yeah. great to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to know what you think. My hypothesis is that this is simply the effect of globalization, that as a result of us getting more information, being more aware every year of the fact that we share the planet with a bunch of other countries, we're more used to them. And it's human nature that as, as you become used to things, you trust them more. It's, it's survival. You know, something that's been sitting in your room for a few years and it's never killed you, you learn to trust it. And so I think we're, year after year after year, we're learning to trust other countries. I, I never heard about the statistic. It's fascinating. Um, but I haven't I, published I, I, it. I really should do. Yeah, you should. You should, you should uh, put it in Steve Pinker's book. Um, I think that's, that's one of the things he's missing on that global scale. He talks about a lot you know, on, on, on vaccines and, and the way our life gets better. We don't really appreciate it. I think uh, that's, that's been a part of a problem because we adjust to the new level, kind of like the new generation is always using whatever we achieve as a base level and is grumpy about our failings. Yeah. And I, I think what, what, what I talked about that before on the show is what I really feel is 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 such helpful it's so helpful to people it's just crossing um, national borders and uh, that's mm -hmm. even true in the european union today where where it seems mm -hmm. to be well, let's and let's use the pre-covid european union where everyone thinks it's one domestic market but actually it's 25 or 30 different localities and even germany where i was born you know every state is quite different they even have different languages and they have different customs and you you can't just um you're not in the same like Berlin is not the same as Munich, no, not by any means. And people behave mm -hmm. different, different social standards. But once you get to travel, and this is why I think travel is really the, the solution to world peace. Once you experience all these, these places, and you don't have to go to all the places, you can start small and go to like 20 or 30 different ones. Mm. You, you will never come back and say, and I think this is your experience too, um, you, you don't come back and say, oh, I went to Afghanistan and these people are terrible. Oh, we have to nuke them off the planet. Uh, this is never going. It's never going to happen, right? So, I mean, there's exceptions. You know, you can go to Iraq and maybe you, you're. But even the veterans and I had James Wilcox on, and you know, he's like, we do this tour to Afghanistan and to Somalia, and you know, who's a really strong um, group who wants to go to these places. It's just the average traveler, but it's also a lot of veterans. So even if you if you fought there, if you've been injured, if you've seen the other side and they tried to kill you, you still a lot of people develop an appreciation for something different that because you go so wherever you go, there's something you hold close to your heart. Um, there is and it's often especially outside the tourist economy. And yeah. I feel if, if people go through this process and it's gotten much cheaper, they will always come back and slowly, slowly appreciate other countries more and appreciate other cultures, other ways of solving yeah. the same problem. And you you it's almost impossible to come back and make enemies when you go out there on a, a little bit open. I mean, you, you, there's, there's other examples, but I think this is a process that you can't reverse it. Two things I would say about that. On the whole, I agree with you. And I have always subscribed to the old idea that travel broadens the mind. One of the things I uh, remember writing in a previous book of mine is um, we, we grow up wearing a shirt that has a different pattern from the wallpaper in our room. Um, no, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. We grow up wearing a shirt that has the same pattern as the wallpaper in our room. And okay. so when you look at yourself in your own room, it's very difficult to see where your own outline is because you merge into the wall and okay. you can't see where your shirt begins and where the wall ends. So you identify yourself within the culture as part of the culture and it's almost inseparable. The moment you walk out of that room, into an unfamiliar room, suddenly you're wearing a flowery shirt and the wallpaper is striped and suddenly you can see your own outline. 
you suddenly realize who you are because you don't match the culture. I've always felt that that's one of the reasons why travel broadens the mind. I wish it were invariably true, but it's not invariably true. And one of the interesting things is that a certain number of people, I think it's a minority, tend to be made even more narrow-minded by the experience of travel. We all know people who are expats who have lived perhaps all of their lives in another country and become professional haters of that country. Um, the, uh, the British are quite good at this. You find British expat communities all over the, the British, world. It's a British-German experience, I feel. But go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. And, and, you know, they've been living in this country for most of their lives and it suits them to live there because it's cheap or whatever. And they even speak the language rather aggressively and they eat the local food rather uh, in, in a state of constant irritation. But they become hardened racists as a result of it. So there's yeah. some complexity, some mystery going on there. It's not simply that travel always broadens your mind. It broadens the mind for most people, but there's a, a chemical mixture going on there, which is something to do with your character before you travel and the impact that the travel has on you afterwards. The, what I can confirm from my own research is that it's definitely true that people on the whole like countries more after they visited them than when they haven't. Um, looking at just tourism numbers from, from my research, you can find that if anybody visits a country, generally speaking, it doesn't matter, even if they have a bad experience there, they will generally rank that country higher after that point, as far as I can tell, for the rest of their lives. And that's simply because it's turned from being in something imaginary to something real. When you can only imagine a country and you'd never been there, your imagination tends to make it look rather fuzzy a little bit weird, a little bit gray. You're just sort of vaguely picturing things. And there's a thing called negativity bias, which tends to make you afraid of the things that you can't see. It's a little bit like a nightmare. You know, sometimes you're falling asleep and you wake up with a start because you know you're having a nightmare, even though nothing bad has happened. You know, the, the, the axe murderer hasn't even appeared, but you know you're having a nightmare because you can't see properly. And that's the nightmarish aspect of it. So when you've never been to a country, it looks like a nightmare. The moment you actually get off the plane and you step on the tarmac or off the train or whatever it is, and suddenly you realize that the colors are there, that the sun is in the sky, that you can smell things if you're lucky enough to be able to smell. I'm not, but I understand it's a wonderful thing. Suddenly you realize you're in reality. And from that moment onwards, it's real people, it's a real place. And of course, people are lovely wherever you go. In fact, the more desperate a country is, the more troubled, the more war-torn, the more corrupt, on the whole, the nicer the people are. Yeah, well, I agree. I agree. I call it positive PTSD. You know, it's this, 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 and I think this is also where the minority comes from that doesn't take travel so well. And I think the, 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 the problem is you, you learn about yourself things you wouldn't have known before, and maybe you didn't even want to know about huh, those things. Maybe that's true. Yeah. And a lot of times I think it's very positive, um, but only if you, especially if you go to the edges of your own experience, if, you, if you're trapped in the tourist economy, I think, uh, yes, uh, there's no new experience, but even that is good if you're like 16 year old to do a, go on your solo trip, um, yeah. 18 years old. Maybe, but, you're, maybe you're right, maybe you're right. Maybe if you're a crap person and you go to another country and you learn as a result of going to the other country, what a crap person you are, that will cause makes, you to hate the, you hate the country because it's made you feel bad about yourself. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And, then, you know, the, the, the problem is with PTSD, it's not necessarily what you see. It is what you are capable of doing in, in mm -hmm. light of whatever people, other people force you to because they put you in a dangerous situation or they put you in a new situation mm -hmm. where you have to deal with new experiences. And I think this mm -hmm. is... 
this is where this comes from. Um, you, you did something very interesting, and I, I want to learn more about this. You said you started a new country. Um, <laughs> how did that work, and does it still exist? Um, it, it was an experiment, which um, a pilot project, which which ran its course. Um, so it's it's over now, but it was a very very interesting experiment while it lasted. Basically, what happened was this: um, in 2014, I um, launched the Good Country Index, which um, we may or may not have time to talk about later on. Very, very quickly, the Good Country Index tries to measure what each country on earth contributes to the world outside its own borders. So irrespective of how it treats its own people or its own territory, this exclu excludes all of that and just looks at whether a country is a good global citizen or not. And I, I launched the first edition of this index um, at a TED event in Berlin. And to everybody's astonishment, the TED talk did really well. Um, it went viral. Now, this doesn't normally happen with talks about international politics. Um, I actually saw today that that TED talk from 2014 is um, the number one all-time most viewed TED talk on the subject of government. Um, Congratulations. That's, Thank that's you. hard to pull up, extremely hard to pull up. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's had over 12 million views. And the more interesting thing was that the moment it went out, I started getting hundreds and hundreds and then gradually thousands and thousands and then eventually tens of thousands of emails. I always put my email address on the internet in case people want to write to me and I always answer them. Um, and they were all basically from people describing themselves in the same way that I would describe myself. They were basically saying, I think I'm a citizen of the world first and a citizen of my own nation second. I love my country, but I love being human more. I feel I have something in common with everybody on the planet. I love diversity. I don't suffer from racism. I get fed up with domestic politics because it seems trivial compared to the big issues that we're all facing. And as they were describing themselves, I thought to myself, these people are just like me. This is almost like a character type. I wonder if this has ever been studied before. So I started researching and I couldn't find any description of this character type. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a name. And I called them natural cosmopolitans. And these are people who are just born believing that they owe their allegiance to a bigger tribe than their own nation. And um, I did some research together with my colleague, Robert Govers, and we eventually managed to put an estimate on the number. We discovered that these people these natural cosmopolitans are definitely no less than 10% of the world's adult population. That is over 700 million people. So I found myself thinking, wow, 700 million people, that's too big to be uh, um, a startup, that's too big to be an NGO or a charity or, or whatever. That's a nation. In fact, if it was a nation, it would be the third largest nation on the planet after India and China. And a nation of natural cosmopolitans the third largest nation on, on, on the planet could really be a force for good. It could really, really kick some ass in the international community and encourage countries to work together and to focus on the stuff that's really important instead of focusing exclusively on their own interests. So that was the point at which I decided that um, it would be a really cool idea to create a virtual nation for these 700 million natural cosmopolitans. And um, to go, together with my then co-founder, we uh, created um, this virtual country and we ran a pilot for just under a year to see how many people would sign up. We asked them to pay $5 each per year as their taxes um, because we calculated we didn't need more than $5. We, 
it, it, the point about it being a virtual nation is it has no territory. And that's good because territory is a nuisance. You, once you have territory, you start needing to get an army to defend it and things become compli complicated. And you, But we didn't need to offer these people a society because they were already uh, nationals of another, of another state. And $5, if we'd got all 760 million citizens, would have given us the GDP of Sierra Leone to play with every year, which is quite a substantial war chest. And we'd have been able to do some, um, some serious work. Um, you, could, you, you could have been king of that country. I, that's the very, very last thing I wanted. Most of the, um, in fact, one of the really important things about the project was that um, we devised um, an, uh, a method of using artificial intelligence, which actually enabled this to be the first state in history that was self-governing. Um, it didn't need a government and it didn't need leaders because artificial intelligence enables you to have um, uh, basically um, collective decision-making with a group of infinite size. Um, yeah, a lot of people, I find this super interesting. A lot of people talk about this from the crypto community where they say, you know, our cities are basically broken, um, especially um, in the US. They, 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 they seem to go through these cycles of extreme depression and we just had a really big one. Why don't we take the people that we actually love, people, other people on the internet and the crypto, we take crypto money, we stake it against it. We build a virtual community first, a virtual country, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you can issue passports, but there's been cases <clears throat> like the 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 Order of St. John from Malta, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they used to have a territory in Malta and then they lost it, but they're still mm -hmm. a country and they, they don't have a territory anymore, but they're still recognized mm -hmm. as, a, as a country by many by many other countries. And you know, we also we also recognize the Vatican with a with a very minimal um territory. Yeah. So the idea is can you actually institute like take say take a million crypto users um they would set up their own country maybe far out and see but territory is mm. easy to 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 uh, to defend um or like a little island uh, do you think you can just start it put that money against it and they get citizenship and they get like say ultra liberal or non-liberal whatever policies you want to enact they just kind of um go off to that island but they obviously go they never really go there it's all virtual yeah the the the, the problem that i have with pretty much every single other startup nation that I've ever seen is that they are fundamentally tribalist in principle. Um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get together the people that they feel are the right people. Um, yeah. And this was absolutely not the, in fact, that was the opposite of what the good country was about. Sure, we were going okay. to start with those 700 million natural cosmopolitans, but not because we wanted to exclude everybody else, but because we felt that we're starting with those people who already shared the dream it would be the easier way to then build and build and build and eventually get perhaps a majority of the world's population signing up to those values of collaboration. Um, the, 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 the problem with all of these other um, startup nations is they're always running away from things. They always want to, because you know, in many, many cases, they feel in some way either explicit or sort of hidden that they're in some way superior to the rest of society. And very often the person or the people who run it want to run something they you know they've got a they've got a, a power mania and they want to be the president of somewhere and they figure that the only way they're ever going to be the president of somewhere is by starting somewhere um, yes. and getting a bunch sure. of dumb people to to pay obeisance to them so it seems to me that all of these all of these things are devised in exactly the opposite spirit to the one that's really required here um, you're not supposed to be running away the whole point of the good country project was that we were running towards the grand challenges um, running towards humanity, engaging with it, 
uh, not trying to escape. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very philosophical distinction. I, I, I don't know if, if I know enough to really go down deep into this, but it's a bit like the promised land, right? So the promised land mm. is you define something other people want where, where, where everything is the way God designs it. But obviously it, there's challenges in order to get there and it's theoretically open. It's very open and it's less open, you know, changes over time in the in the Old Testament stories. So I think this is how usually, how marketing at least has found it usually works. You define something other people want, you tell them this is the price, this is how you get there, this is your challenge. And uh, in that process, you become a better person. That's at least the idea, right? You become a better person in the eye of the person who designed it in the first place. And I think this is also the idea of a chapter city that are kind of keep floating from time to time and then they then you don't hear about them anymore, that you design something that works so well, like a Dubai, new Dubai in, say, the Congo, um, mm. that it works so well that it would make everyone want to live there. And this is the only reason you get it off the ground, because people are excited about it and they put their money to it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are an awful lot of these experiments going on at the moment. Um, yeah. And it'd be interesting to see if anybody does actually make critical mass. I think the idea of building new cities is very interesting, and I'm, I'm aware of a couple of groups who are doing things like that. Sometimes it's ecologically driven. They're floating cities that are resilient to rising water levels. Sometimes yeah. it's to solve a particular problem. There's a group I'm associated with, a, um, an NGO called Andan, um, who are looking to, um, to build cities specifically to house migrants. Now, that's a really interesting question. Um, it's, in some senses, the opposite of a refugee camp. Um, it's a place where they can actually make a life if they choose to. Um, but of course, this is a really, really, really controversial idea because there's a moral hazard attached to it. If you create a wonderful city where all of the stateless persons and the refugees can go and live where they're safe, isn't that then relieving ordinary societies of their duty to take in migrants? Isn't that like just saying, okay, we accept that human beings uh, in rich countries <coughs> are, are never going to feel a sense of duty towards people in less fortunate countries. So we take away that obligation by creating a super ghetto where all of these poor refugees can go and live. And, you know, there, there are some uncomfortable ideas associated with this that still need to be worked through. But I like the fact that there are big, bold solutions being debated at this point in history, because this is surely the point where we should be doing that. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. There's there's one idea being floated here in the US. Uh, it's not very realistic right now, but it's definitely a, a big idea that we're going to have like a like a 10 year, 20 year master plan to go to 1 billion um, citizens in the US. And the way we, we go there is basically open the borders and let everyone in who have delivered stories within the criteria we want, if you can even determine this that far. I really like that plan, hmm. but I still... I, What's the I, advantage I really... of having so, such a large population? Well, the idea obviously is that we have to compete with China, right? So China is soon going to be around 1 billion because they are, the population is decreasing. It's not falling apart. But it's definitely How decreasing. depressing. How depressing. So it's basically in order <laughs> it's very to... very nation state. Yeah, very nation state. But, but, but what I wanted to get at is, you know, isn't... Can you pull this off without borders, right? What I'm trying to say, even if you mm. let anyone in who wants to come to the US, literally mm. you let anyone in, there's no mm. restrictions. But once they're inside you, or you can do this with the European Union, any any major um, mm. um, big uh, state out there. But can you, if you just say there's no borders, there's no restrictions, the United States basically doesn't exist anymore. There's cities, but the United States doesn't exist anymore mm. because we are all mm. citizens of the world, right? Mm. If you take that that far, do you think that can work? Because it seems to be that, there is you need to define something that you want to want to dangle in front of, of people as a carrot right so that's what mm -hmm. we talked about just just earlier I, I 
if you don't define and if you don't say, okay, this is the border, this is where we can't protect you anymore, then it seems like what's the nation state basically stops existing, but also your carrot stops existing. And the carrot can be really good because I feel these modern institutions of the state, they've moved us to where we are, right? They, they brought us this enlightenment um, over time. It kind of, and a lot of people I think are not aware of this. They, they, they kind of, they see how the state works, but they don't know why it is designed that way. Yes. Um, there's, there's certainly an issue with the size of many, if not most, modern nation states. I mean, my, my day job is I'm, I'm a policy advisor. I advise governments on how, how they can run their countries better. And one of the things that I've, I've observed is that most states over a population of, I don't know, three, four million are quite literally ungovernable. Um, it's just too many people. And, uh, you know, countries like Mexico or the United States, where you've got hundreds of millions of people, albeit federalized, that makes it ever so slightly easier to manage. But these are, these are basically ungovernable territories. The, the, the group of people is simply too large for any central government um, to really have uh, any idea what it's doing. Um, and so I have no doubt whatsoever that governance is effective in proportion to its closeness to the governed. You can do a better job if you're closer sure. to the people that you're governing, which is one of the reasons why this old bugbear, which haunts Americans to this day of one world government, is such a terrible idea. Americans who don't listen to what I'm saying often assume that that's what I'm pitching because they know that's what bad people pitch. And it's the worst idea in the world. Can you imagine anything worse than a government in New York or anywhere else um, dictating the lives of people thousands of miles away. I mean, how I'm is glad that? you. I'm glad you say that. Yeah, I'm glad you say that. That that. How, how that, is that that's a one recipe thing people for, need to understand? Yeah, yeah. How is that a recipe for good anything? That's a recipe for tyranny at best and chaos at worst. Um, yeah. So uh, I feel quite nostalgic about the medieval European city states. You know, I think that Florence or Siena, those are pretty good um, jurisdictions. Those are about. Those are a human size. And in many times during my career, I've looked back at the way that citizens, prominent and otherwise, behaved in those medieval city-states and the relationship they had with them. And it's impossible not to notice how pathological our relationship is to our nation-states today compared to the relationship that, say, Cosimo de' Medici had towards Florence. I mean, okay, he ran the place, so he was a special kind of citizen. But it was obvious that for almost all the citizens of Florence um, in, the, in the Middle Ages, there was a relationship of mutual love, trust, and understanding between those people and their city. And that's been replaced in the modern age with a relationship of prostitution. We throw a handful of coins at our administrations, at our governments, and say, here, run the place for me, and you won't hear from me again unless you screw up, in which case I'm going to call customer service and I'm going to protest. This is pathological. This is not a good relationship, and there needs to be a way of correcting that. That, I, that correction, I think, inevitably involves running things on a smaller scale. Yeah, I think you touch a really important point. I think we all feel this. It's like the, the, the Florence was kind of the Singapore of the days or the, the mm. Dubai, and you, you go to these places and you see how closely people are aligned. And this has nothing to do with their nationality, right? Because mm. like Singapore is now at least half South Indian or maybe mm. one third 
and it's uh, there's a 20% um, are Caucasian. And the original Chinese founders, there were a few Malays, um, but the original Chinese founders, original um, ethnic group, they, they, they've, they've done a really good job of integrating everyone. I think and it's, 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 you can feel the love for their nation state and for their, for their common project, at least until like 10 years ago, it was very visible. And I think this is even true in Dubai, which you know couldn't be further in, in ethnic lines than, than, than any other place. And the, I think the problem is, and I think this is coming from the crypto community a lot, how can we reinstill this sense of we, 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 are, we are in this together, we, 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 we have an impact on society, we have an impact on that nation state, and, and it certainly must be bigger because nobody has an impact in China as a single entity, or even as a, mm. like a few hundred or a few thousand people. But how do we, we how do we fix that level where we clearly need some borders or it's some kind of okay this this is where it ends and then we have this this superstructure around us right and you, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you said that earlier you do, you don't you don't think of this one government policy but how do we how do we make all these little things entities and I think there's there's a lot to, to say about that um, to say like a like a Miami could be their own city or San Francisco mm-hmm. they are their own city but it could be their own semi nation state how do we <laughs> How do we integrate all those different, that's kind of the, the idea of competition, right? How do they all work together? Well, uh, let's look at how they work individually first. Um, okay. And I think a very, very important part of that journey um, has to be um, developments, advances in self-governance. Um, getting citizens directly involved in the way that their communities are managed, because this is the thing that we've lost. And um, there's no better evidence for this than the fact that community service in many, many countries around the world is actually a punishment. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, it's Um, true. I never thought about that. Yeah, How absolutely fucked up is that? You know, it should be an honour to serve your community. Um, In fact, I think it should be an alternative to taxation. Um, I think you should be allowed to sweep the leaves in the park instead of paying taxes if you can't afford your taxes. That, to me, would make sense, contribution to your state. And I think that there's an awful lot of good work being done these days at the local level, at the domestic level, by organizations like the Alternative Party in Denmark in particular, and and their UK cousins, Alternative UK, who are all about getting citizens actively involved in the management of places. And then a lot of these issues about where does the authority lie just sort of vaporize because there isn't really authority. If people are totally, genuinely, wholly committed to participating, or at least if they're not committed, they have the ability to pass that on to somebody else through a single transferable vote, liquid democracy, all of this kind of stuff that's so often in the news these days. So that's the first thing. I think the other thing that we really do need to have to look at very, very carefully is the question of people's sense of loyalty to their tribe or unit or whatever it is. Where does the point come where that benign nationalism or benign city feeling crosses a boundary and becomes malignant. Most citizens of medieval Florence would have gone around noisily claiming that their city-state was better than any other city-state. You could argue that that's fine, that's just high spirits, and that's decent pride. But then when you take another step and they're starting to say, we're so much better that they shouldn't exist, or we're so much better that their citizens would be better off if they were under our jurisdiction instead of their jurisdiction. There's this dividing line where loyalty to the tribe turns malignant, becomes arrogant, becomes superior, and eventually becomes hostile. And that's the thing we need to look at. I think benign nationalism, benign patriotism is natural 
and fine. I love my country. I love its landscape. I don't love my nation state. I don't love its leaders. I don't love its institutions. I don't love its army. I don't love its president. But I love my home. So these things all need to be carefully sorted out and, uh, and, and uh, catered for. Yeah, you know, what, what, what this reminds me of, and I think it's, it's, it's still one of the best books I've, I've read on that topic, and I'm curious what you think. You know, Jared Diamond's book, um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And the, yeah. the, basic, uh, the basic, and I think we're, 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 just, we're talking about the same topic. We're, just, we're looking at states and we're looking at, at, at the level of, of entity. And what he was basically saying, why is that that um, 15th, 16th century um, Europeans were light years ahead of everyone else and literally yeah. 100 Spanish could, could subdue, I don't know, 10 million um, Southern Americans um, with, with ease, basically. Mm. And um, how, how, how is it that there's still, in his example was Papua New Guinea, how there's still a, play, a lot of people in the world who live in similar concepts like Europe lived, 2,000 mm. years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, as hunter and gatherers, um, and it never moved beyond that. So it seems mm. to be something that is, it does, doesn't come ne necessarily natural, doesn't come with our DNA, the way we are organized, right? So there's, there's several layers you put on top of it, several software upgrade layers. I trace them back to the Old Testament, but I'm curious about your opinion. Mm. And uh, we put these layers on top of it, and they, they, they really give us the compounded results, especially in the last couple of hundred years. Mm. But the question is a little bit, well, I think, and uh, Jared wasn't really answering this in his book. He, in the end, said, you know, and that's kind of a spoiler. He said, he runs you through all this history and in the end says, you know, it was all an accident. And uh, whoever is not part of this development, you can learn from it, but it wasn't never your fault. And maybe he's onto something, but I always felt that isn't the answer I was looking for. I was, I was, I was kind of looking for a way to, to tell me, how do we advance? How do we build these civilizations? How do we make the better planet? And he wasn't really, he wasn't really, um, answering that question. I don't know if you have a better answer for, for me. Well, I have to admit, first of all, that I haven't read Jared Diamond, so I can't fully join you in that conversation. I probably okay. should, shouldn't I? Um, it's a good book. Yeah, it's very yeah. well, very well researched. I don't like the conclusions, but I think the facts are fantastic. Yeah, there are so many good books out there. You never have time to read all of them. Um, anyway, I prefer to read fiction at my age. I find... <laughs> um, yeah, I, I find these kinds of um, books on macroeconomics or history or sociology to be quite heavy going, most of them, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I wrote my latest book, The Good Country Equation, the way I did. I wanted it to be more like an adventure story than a textbook so that people actually it's a book written in color so that there would be characters and locations and episodes and fun. I mean, there are things in there that are meant to make people laugh. I'm. I'm grieved to hear that you've only read one chapter. I hope that your attention span is capable of... Because I didn't order it early enough. I would have read more. So usually I make a, a big effort diving into reading the books and uh, he, yeah. listen to a lot of talks um, from... from but no, uh, I, didn't want, I didn't want to put you on the spot there, Torsten. Um, no, no, no. no I, so... I'm very curious to read it. I'm, I think there's a lot of truth in it and I, I can already hear that, of course. So the, so the basic question is the oldest question of all. Why do some nations develop and others not? Um, yeah. what's the, what, where does progress come from? Um, I, I, I don't know. There was a very interesting book I read many years ago by David Landis called, um, uh, called what was it called? You know the one I mean. Um, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. David Landis? I don't know him. La Landis. Um, 
I if I hadn't paused then, I would have The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And that's a, a book which attempts to answer the, the same sort of question. And although, again, it is an absolutely fascinating read, I had a somewhat similar response to the book at the end as you did to Jared Diamond in the sense that the final conclusions just seemed to be a little unsatisfactory. Um, David Landis is very good on climate, for example. And a lot of the stuff that he says about the climate that people live in uh, has an influence over the economic activities that they engage in and therefore the amount of growth that they develop. I'm also very interested in unpicking this sort of hidden assumption in the question that um, the economic development is necessarily a, a good result and be the only good result. Um, that's that's, that's a very good question. question. But the, the obvious answer is, uh, the, and, and that's the 14th, 15th century right there. Mm. You can think whatever you want about economic development. If you're not ahead of everyone else, you're going to die. Like that's almost guaranteed, right? So you, you better develop or you, you, your ancestors, the next generation is not going to make it because it seems, and that seems to be true for all of human history. And I'm, I'm not sure we are really in a post-conflict society. I don't, I don't see it, to be honest. I think you're still mm. wired in the same ways. And I think we, we, we have different conflicts now. And the last huge conflict was the most, most deadly ever, right? So that the Second World War killed enough people for, I don't know, was it, what is 40 million people? Um, that's well, we didn't kill that many people in, in centuries before altogether, right? So it, it finally gave us a pause because it was such a, such a massacre. But I think I'm not, the, the current generation has no memory of this and has no fear of a war. I'm, I hope we're in a post-conflict society. I don't think we are. I think there is something bad brewing up there. And if 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 you don't outcompete your neighbor, and I think this still holds true, then you stop existing and your children stop existing. I think that's the danger that people don't see that. Well, yes. I mean, I I, I think you perhaps go too far um, because there are exceptions to that. And on a planetary level, there is room for societies, civilizations. To move at different speeds and even to pause at certain levels of development. I mean, Papua New Guinea, for whatever whatever you may say about it, does still exist. Um, yes. And uh, they're not dead. Um, but what's the exception to the rule, right? So the whole of Africa was 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 really colonized. Um, South America was colonized early on, was was decimated by all the diseases. Uh, North America, you know, every continent where, where white people put their foot on, um, they never really left without some way colonizing it um which we which i mean i'm open to 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 put this in perspective but on the other hand you know the the, the colonizers themselves they were kind of oppressed in where they came from right they were usually outsiders in society they wanted to mm -hmm. venture out they wanted to make money they were entrepreneurs or they were people who like in the case of australia they were prisoners right they would have been mm -hmm. executed otherwise in, in britain mm -hmm. so they they had their own problems and they used their skills to oppress other people we can say that way mm -hmm. Yes, do, do I buy that? Um, I mean, certainly the, the troops, the soldiers in British India, for example, were not well off. They were private soldiers and a great many of them were probably fighting or earlier on working for the East India Company because they needed the money. But the, the generals and the administrators, the policymakers, the Viceroy of India and all the rest of it, these were the upper elites. Um, and so the, even, even if the strategy wasn't implemented um, by privileged people, it was certainly devised by privileged people. Um, yeah. and, and the example of Australia is, you know, Australia was a penal colony, but that's not the norm. 
um, the norm was that colonization was carried out by uh, people who were rather well off um, and fancied being in a place where they could have uh, lots of cheap labor and lots of cheap land, basically. Um, so um, I don't know, I, I get into a lot of arguments about the impacts of colonization on the uh, good country index. Um, I get oh, yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah, yeah. What do you think mm -hmm. is the impact? How do people perceive this? Because I know when I go to India, when I go to many African colonies, mm -hmm. it is on everyone's mind. This is not yes. a topic that, that, that people have been are over with. It's on people's mind and it really impacts their day-to-day -day policies. Absolutely. And, you know, I very regularly get emails from, from people um, often in what we call developing countries saying um, it's outrageous that you put our country so low in the index it's not our fault, it's because you bastards colonized us. Um, so just sort of peel away the rhetoric. Um, I slightly resent the automatic assumption that it was me that did it, um, or even my ancestors that did it. Actually, you carried a passport, yes, you're, 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 you're guilty, guilty yes. as charged. Um, um, oh, no, what do you think from a British perspective? I always felt that's, you know, Brits as the ones who who have, were kind of the best colonizers out there. Usually British colonies do the best economically, right? Um, not no. necessarily in human rights, but there's also tons and tons of countries that the Brits started with or without the help of the locals. Sure. I think it's an interesting question. Um, and I think it's a very valid and very important question. Would India rank where it does on the good country index today if it hadn't been colonized by the British? Um, yeah. And so um, my colleague, Robert Govis and I actually um, tried to uh, carry out a decolonized version um, of the Good Country Index where we removed the structural advantages that certain Western countries enjoy as a result of having pillaged uh, poorer countries in their past. And it did make some interesting differences to the ranking, but they were not enormous. Um, obviously, this is uh, not a precise science because you're doing a lot of guessing there. But the India was so far ahead, right? It was so it was like the, the one of the highest GDP in the world 150, 160 years ago. Right, and I think that it's uh, this this question of of where these countries were before colonization is also a critically important part of the conversation. Not in any sense to try to evade um, the, the 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 blame um, for undertaking these colonial um, adventures, which today would be one hopes unthinkable. Um, but I do think that there's... Um, Today we call it Hollywood, you know. <laughs> well, that's empire by permission. I think that's different. If you sell people things and they voluntarily buy them, um, then, you know, America is an entirely new kind of empire from that point of view. It's very subconscious too, or this, this permission, right? I mean, the, yeah. the manipulation and the subconsciousness of it is like another layer. You, nobody, I think, really gives conscious permissions to these American ideas many times, but they still in, we, we manipulate people out by, their, by their limbic brain. Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a long, long discussion. But I, I have to I have to admit that I do sometimes get impatient um, with uh, people um, lecturing me on the basis of a history that conveniently stops at the point just immediately before they became a vassal race. So why don't you include the British Empire in your evaluation of India and the Good Country Index? Well, because it would be impossible it would be entirely subjective because the data doesn't go back that far because it would take me the rest of my life to do the calculation. Those are the obvious reasons. But the other question I ask in reply is, okay, fine, let's just pretend that I could do that. And let's just pretend 
that I could go back as far as that. Why stop there? Or take the example of um, Germany. I get a lot of people writing to me and lecturing me about um, Nazism. And they say, how can you justify ranking Germany so high in the good country index? Have you never heard of Adolf Hitler? Don't you know what the Germans did? And I reply, yes, I know exactly what the Germans did. Um, but if we're going to go back in our imaginations, because it can only be in our imaginations, and do this analysis historically, why would we stop in 1939? Why would we not go back much further? And where would we stop and where would we draw the line? And it doesn't matter where you draw the line, it's always random. And you're deliberately cutting off history at a certain point because you deliberately want to exclude what came before. So back to India, why don't we go back another 600 years and look at the various empires that India had over other territories? Is that somehow more trivial than the British Empire just because it happened a long time ago? Were the deaths somehow less valuable because they're forgotten? I don't think so. I think if you're going to care yeah. about the, the crimes that people perpetrate against each other in the past, then it has to be throughout human history. And you're actually left with very few countries that have never done any harm to anybody else. Now, that is absolutely not an argument to say that the British Empire was fine because everybody does it. That's not my point at all. My point is simply that it's enormously difficult to make proper allowances for that because it's the beginning of a very, very, very long thread that you start pulling out of history and it never stops and it never ends. And by the time you finish pulling it, you're naked. You're not wearing a sweater anymore at all because you pulled the whole skein of wool out of it. Yeah, you, you I don't basically, know the you know, the, the cradle of humanity. I think this is as old as, as humans exist, that, they, that mm. they, have, they go through these cycles and there is unfortunately some violence in there. And I always feel, and I, I, I'm curious, you know, this plays into it, you, you make that argument that we are hopefully in a post-war society, um, and but also that the good country basically gives people the impression, but on a country level, how many people are are doing the morally good, right? Mm -hmm. So how how many of them are able to 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 oversee this these these little nitpickings of everyday nation life and look mm -hmm. into bigger issues, but. What, what I feel, and that's just my gut feeling, I don't have any good data, you way better with the data you've got. I feel there is a price for morality. And mm -hmm. most of the time, the morality, there is a, there's a positive and negative, right? So I feel like the Old Testament, and that's why I'm saying this, like the software upgrade to humanity, and most of these things have proven true. That's why it's still around after such a long time. And we, we derived it in different subsectors. So Christianity obviously is part of this and, and Islam, and, but other nations are now influenced by that too, um, in, indirectly, uh, even if they don't have this as a, as a majority religion. What I'm trying to say, there was a negative price on that morality because it actually paid off. It was easier to bring the next generation along. It was easier to feed them. Yeah. But there's other morality that seems to have a price attached. So you can follow this, but it, it might be, and we don't know from any new things that we think are moral now, they might have a price, right? So it might be pretty difficult to to actually keep going because it say it, it reduces your GDP by 50%. What I mean by this is like climate change, right? We want to save the climate, but if we reduce our GDP by 80%, you know, I don't think we're going to be around anymore. Torsten, if, if the only arguments that I had for countries being gooder were moral arguments, I would never have written the book. Um, See, I have I, to read the book. I don't... That's the problem, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't trust moral arguments at the level at which I work. When I'm dealing with nation states, um, morals don't count. The nation state is not a moral entity. And yeah. as a consequence of that, 
the majority of the people who make policy decisions at the upper level in nation states are not moral beings. They bloody well ought to be, but they're not. And that's because the calculations they make are calculations of national self-interest, and that is unavoidable. The nation state is designed to be selfish. Our whole principle of the sovereign states, which are responsible for their own internal affairs and nothing else, is the problem. So there is there would simply be no point in me going to the government of any nation, even a quote-unquote good nation like Finland, and saying, you should be emitting less CO2 because that's the moral thing to do. That it would be pointless. They would answer me politely and then forget about it immediately. The reason I felt that I was able to justify adding yet another book to the far too many books there are on the planet is because every argument in the good country equation is based on enlightened self-interest. It clearly demonstrates that there are good reasons, self-interested reasons, why nation states should behave themselves better. At one level, it's a very, very simple argument, which is actually very similar to corporate social responsibility, except in the, um, in the public sphere. One of the things that I've proved by measuring the images of countries is that the only sure way of getting a better image and thereby getting more trade is by doing good. If you simply brag about how beautiful or rich or successful or powerful you are, nobody cares. It doesn't make any difference at all. But if you're a country that's perceived to do good outside its own borders, is a, a committed and principled member of the international community, people will like you more. And if they like you more, they will buy your products, they will hire your people, they'll invest in your economy. So this is pure self-interest. And this is the argument that I've found over my career actually does make a difference. There have been a few occasions when I've been able to go to a head of state or a head of government and say, look, you should increase the amount of foreign overseas development assistance you're giving because or you should reduce the amount of pollution you're creating because I can demonstrate that ties directly into, into your country's brand image. And if your country has a better brand image, you will make more money. So uh, there are other mechanisms within there, but there's not a single thing in there that's played from a moral point of view because I know it won't go anywhere. I'm not a cynic, but I just know how countries are run. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I feel... Well, if you ask me, if a moral, if a moral, and I think we're on the same, on the on the same um, side there. I think we both have slightly different terminologies. If you make a moral argument, and it 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 increases your likeliness to survive the next generation with more money than otherwise, then I think this moral argument is very well founded, um, because this is something defendable as as you know since the beginning of civilization. But it's a moral argument. Sometimes it takes a while to find the real. The real. It's it's not clear yeah. when you make the argument if it will pay off, but it's worth worth a shot. I think that's it, the entrepreneurial but, journey. Right, but again, you see, one of the things I'm very careful to do is to uh, minimize the long-term payback arguments. Again, right. it's a similar reason, because the um, governments, at least the uh, elected governments of democratic countries, know that they're only going to be in office for four years or six years or whatever it is. Yep. And therefore, um, trying to um, sway them by long-term benefit arguments is equally pointless. Yeah. And so all <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, they're, they're going to be out of office before the benefits are felt. So they're by definition sure. not interested. I understand this. I won't say I respect it, but I understand it. And therefore, all of the arguments I make to governments, and this is what the good country equation is, is this set of arguments, this set of mechanisms. Yeah. Um, not only are they deliberately about enlightened self-interest, national self-interest, but they are also deliberately short to medium term. 
So yeah, there's a set we... of arguments that says, you know, do this because yeah. because if you do if you do um, good, you will do well. As I said, it's identical to corporate social responsibility, except what the data shows is that that same mechanism works at the level of the nation state, and that's important because corporate social responsibility has and continues to revolutionize the commercial sector. The fact that corporations now fully understand that they have to pursue their ESG goals, that they have to be good citizens if they want to earn the brand loyalty uh, of, their, of their consumers, that has changed business almost beyond recognition and will continue to do so. All we needed was the same revolution at the level of the nation state, and I'm arguing that we now have it. That's that's a very interesting um, way to look at this. Um, I got to think a little more about that because I'm, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm more interested in the long-term goals. But obviously, you have to sell it, and that's that's you're doing it extremely well. Um, one thing that you also mentioned is the trouble with economic um, aid and the way way we can um, help nations, and maybe there isn't a way to help them. But but I'm curious how you how you think for better solutions. How can we institute help from, from a richer country perspective to a poorer country perspective? And it's something like challenges, like adopter challenges, or what Bill Gates is doing, which is focusing on a different layer, just on the health layer especially. What do you think is the future of economic aid or economic-driven um, development that we institute in other countries? Well, I leave this to I leave this to the experts. Um, I, I'm not an I'm not an expert on on overseas development assistance. I've had a, um, a lot to do with it over the years. I know as much as any careful, up to date reader on the topic will know. Um, basic the basic facts being that most of the billions given away in aid by rich countries to poor countries have not produced the desired effect at anything like the necessary scale. And that we are beginning now to understand much, much more clearly um, what the sources and therefore the remedies of poverty are. It's a lot to do with fixing institutions. Surprisingly, counterintuitively, it may have more to do with giving people cash than we ever let ourselves believe. Certainly, the conventional donation-based overseas development assistance um, has many desirable side effects, some of which are as bad, if not worse, than poverty. It tends to put local businesses uh, out of business um, by providing uh, products and services at zero cost or very low cost. It tends to encourage corruption because by feeding enormous amounts of foreign cash through administrations, um, the temptations for some of that to disappear down the wrong channels is enormous. All of this is relatively well known. Yeah. But I think that I have a bigger issue here, and that is that this whole question of poverty reduction overseas development assistance via charitable means at a very, very deep level defines the West's perception of all the problems in the world. This Victorian notion of charity, as I often say, this simplistic idea that all that's wrong with the world is that you've got this line around the middle of the planet called the equator. And above that line, the problem is that countries have got too many dollars and below the line, the countries don't have enough dollars. And if we can only find mechanisms for transferring enough of the spare dollars from above the line to below the line, then all the problems of the world will be solved. And it is astonishing to me how if you spend a day looking at NGO websites claiming to cure all the problems of the world, whether it's, um, whether it's a lack of education, a lack of sanitation, a lack of whatever, underneath it is always this archetypal subtext that it's about too much money above the line, not enough money above, below the line, and we need to transfer more of that money. Only a civilization like the American civilization 
that has such a, an immoderate worship of money could make the mistake of believing that this is all and only about money. It's much more complicated than that. And uh, one of the things that I try to get across in the good country equation is that these are not arguments about charity. These are not arguments about uh, philanthropy. This is not the white man's burden. This is about all the nations of the earth taking equal responsibility for the planet that they have a part of. And even very small countries acknowledging, their leaders acknowledging, that if you become the president or the prime minister of a country, however small, you join the team that runs the planet and you have influence and you have responsibility and you have agency beyond your immediate sphere of uh, jurisdiction. And if we carry on allowing ourselves to get lost with arguments of historic blame um, and, uh, and, uh, and all the rest of it, the longer we put off the ultimate fact that all nations are equally responsible for the planet and the civilization that we're part of, the longer it's going to be before we start improving things. So we've got to get past that. I don't mean ignoring the crimes of the past. I don't mean putting a lid over it. I don't mean stopping discussing these things. But I do mean getting to a stage where we stop having these two tiers, where you've got poor countries who are um, innocent of every crime, who don't have to play any part in making the world work better. One of the most satisfying things that happened in the Good Country Index in the first edition was the fact that uh, Kenya came in the top 30 um, of the countries that uh, on balance contribute more to the world outside their borders than others. And this proved better, more elegantly than any arguments I could have used, that it is actually fundamentally not about money. One of the reasons why Kenya ranked well in the Good Country Index was because it receives quite a lot of aid. Um, aid is a transaction. It doesn't matter which side of that transaction you're participating in, whether you're a donor or a recipient, you're participating in a useful flow of currency, a useful global flow of currency, which if properly handled, leads to a better world for everybody. Kenya is as responsible for making that chain work by receiving the aid and spending it well, as is the United Kingdom or wherever else for donating the money. So I think these oh, arguments I, I, that say- Yeah, I fully agree with you. I think the, mm. the and, 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 and I think you're, maybe we are not yet there um, to really spell it out, but I feel um, a lot of developing countries, especially in Africa, they know exactly what's going on and why they're not attracting more investment, right? So I think aid is, is a weird idea. It's basically just, to me, it's like giving someone who's homeless money, which is great, but you don't know if this person is going to buy drugs with it and they're going to die tomorrow or if they're going to buy a better shelter, right? I don't know that. If I give them $20, there's not enough drugs, but if I give them 2000 I don't know if they're going to be around tomorrow and if I'm indirectly or directly responsible for that person not making it. So I've, I think a similar story plays out with aid from, from a nation state. And what I think is the answer to this, but it's equally hard to really may pull it off is what the, the, the Asian tigers have done, right? That, that's mm. the example of my generation. Obviously, there's just prior examples all over history. And if you create a situation where other people are interested that have enough money, because we are, we should be credit donation to the US, we are not, but most rich countries are credit donations. They export their money because the returns are better somewhere else. And then they repatriate um, the profits eventually. Mm. And those are typically the higher growth rates are when you have a low GDP, right? As higher your GDP is, as harder it becomes to get high uh, rates of interest, at least in yeah. theory, it just changes over time. And uh, so all the money should go to the, to the debt donations um, fully voluntarily. There's no aid required in my book because when 
in economic theory suggests that they have the better investment opportunities. Now, a lot of countries have good investment opportunities, might be overlooked, but in general, I think the marketplace functions along those lines. And I had Ruby Alcantara on, and she said, you know, the darling was Tanzania for the longest time, attracted a lot of external investment. And then Tanzania, basically all this investment in new companies, someone came around and said, well, give me 50% of whatever investment you received, or you're not going to make it until tomorrow. You literally was like a mafia. And she said, Mm -hmm. it went from being a darling to being the last country to invest because politics destroyed everything in a heartbeat. That's a real issue, right? So if these things are, and that's a cultural issue, I always say you more or less get the government you deserve. Um, It might take a while, you know, but even the Soviet Union, um, finally, all the republics got the government they deserved. It took a while, right? It takes 30, 40, 50, maybe 100 years. But usually within a generation, you get the, the government you, you, you actually deserve. Mm. Um, I just want to take one yeah. step back. Your analogy of giving aid to um, least developed countries and giving money to um, a, a drunk in the park, I think could easily be misunderstood. Um, yeah. Uh, you you got to be, yeah, we got to be careful there. So it's just an analogy in, in what's right to do in that moment. Obviously, charity and donation is extremely important to keep society alive. And it's, yeah. it's a very vital part. And what, what, what the question is, how do, you, how do you set this incentive between giving money away without any, any attachments and then other investment, which is different from that where you want a return, right? So both things are absolutely needed. But, yeah. but I think the investment part could be way bigger. It could be trillions, and we don't have to even worry about it. The people would do it voluntarily way more often. Well, uh, arguably, um, China is showing the way. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Although, as I describe uh, again in my book, I talk quite a lot about this um, comparison between the traditional um, aid, the aid industry of um, well-meaning Western nations in Africa and the rather newer model offered by China. Um, and how in, in some ways, it's, some circumstances, it's quite difficult to decide who's doing more good or more, more harm. Very often, China has a long way to go, I think, in the way that it um, invests in and thereby assists African nations. But most African leaders prefer the Chinese approach because it's not so demeaning. There are, there are no strings attached. They're treated like uh, a business partner. And um, that's the intention and, and that goes down better. Um, but then so often the Chinese don't follow through, for example, they don't train or hire local employment. And so the gift of investment uh, is a gift that's half given and half taken away. Um, but in some circumstances, that's still better than the worst kind of, of, of Western charity. But I just wanted to say that from my point of view, um, I, I will sometimes compare some African politicians, politicians in Africa, um, to the people who you're not quite sure where the money is going to end up if you give it to them, but certainly not the populations. I think the populations, yeah. generally speaking, can be better trusted with the money than the uh, than the, 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 the governments who are supposed to distribute it. Um, oh, yeah. And that's because in Africa, as in most of the world, we have a very, very serious problem about recruiting good people as our politicians. Um, it looks slightly different in the West to the way that it looks in Africa, but basically it's the same fundamental problem. We still haven't figured out how to get the governments that we truly deserve. And we still haven't quite figured out how to ensure that the really good people are properly incentivized to want to become politicians and to want to run countries. I mean, I have to say that throughout my professional life, I've worked with politicians and my view of them is generally more positive 
than the view of people who haven't worked with politicians. Most people say to me, how can you stand it working with those evil people all the time? I haven't found them evil. I found that I think I've worked in 60 countries now and the overwhelming majority of the politicians I've worked with have been good principled people who are doing the jobs they're doing under exceptionally difficult circumstances, generally speaking out of a very, very proper sense of, um, of civic duty. Um, they become politicians in the first place overwhelmingly because they want to do the right thing for their country. The trouble is that the jobs are almost impossible and they're becoming harder and harder and harder by the day. The incentives are all wrong. I still don't understand why it is that we don't require a certain set of skills and knowledge from our politicians, why there isn't a bar that they have to get over, just a technical bar that they understand something of economics, they understand something of international relations, they understand something of society um, and statistics and how things work. Because we end up with a bunch of rank amateurs who really, really don't know the first thing about the job they're supposed to be doing. And it seems to me to be extraordinary that the most important jobs in the world, how our countries are run, are the only jobs where no vetting, no qualification, no previous experience are required. All you have to be able to do is to have sufficient friends to pay enough money to get you elected. I find that I, deeply I, shocking. Yeah, I, 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 I love that question. And not a lot of people are looking at this the right way, I feel. You know, what, what we have gotten in the US, especially, we have basically paid actors, right? They could be CEOs, or they could be politicians, mm -hmm. or they could go to Hollywood. It's kind of the same job description. You, 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 give, you have a certain role, you play it out, you don't stumble too much in public speaking, and that's it, right? And you need a bunch mm -hmm. of money by your benefactors who actually buy the TV ads. This is how you win elections. And what, mm -hmm. what do you say and what the policy is about? In the end, nobody really cares. Um, that seems really dangerous, right? But on the other hand, there is, you know, Socrates' idea of the philosopher king, uh, the person who is so wise it can make better decisions under laws, and uh, the person that is like like King David or King Solomon. But we kind of felt that didn't really work out so well because of these people sooner or later that are that wise, that have all the knowledge, that that know that not just go through the minimum requirements, but are the smartest philosophers on the planet. They kind of become this 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 arrogant being of, of standing above what's right as at least mm. a lot of them are affected by it mm. and they they don't seem to, to be doing a better job than the ones who are paid actors and kind of do mm. random stuff that that's kind of my my learning from history maybe i'm wrong absolutely well i mean you 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 only have to look at, uh, at, the, at the modern history of europe um as a result of of the negative experience of um having several european countries run by charismatic um, um, ideologues, um, Hitler, Mussolini, um, uh, and, and Franco, and so forth, um, the European tide has turned very firmly in the direction of dreary bureaucrats. The European yeah. Union is all about, you know, let's not have any more dangerous men or women running our countries. Um, let's have competent bureaucrats in suits who know how to govern. And that's worked very well for us. But as you said earlier, the moment you get a generation who don't have personal memory of, uh, of, what, a, of what an ideologue, a, a despot, a demagogue looks or sound like, then they fall straight into the same traps again. Um, in the same way that you've got kids in the United States um, getting all excited about uh, fundamentally um, socialist or even communist ideas, um, because even though there's still an enormous amount of uh, anti-socialist propaganda within American culture, nonetheless, there's no personal recollection of the Soviet Union. Um, and in the same way, uh, you, you know, you, you, have, um, you have people voting for uh, politicians 
uh, all around Europe who uh, people of my generation cannot possibly mistake. These are, these are tyrants in the making. Um, yeah. These are illiberal demagogues um, who want to rule by decree, who want to increase their power, who want to curtail the freedoms of their citizens in order to um, promote their own cursed ideologies. But I'm surrounded by people who are not old enough to remember that. Um, and so the pendulum goes back and forth and back and forth. Well, one thing that, that, that really helped me understand that a little better or, or be less, less worried about all the politicians is Peter Zian's work. And I don't know if you, you, you listened to him. What he basic, basically says, he makes an argument that's older than, than his, his work, but his argument is, you know, there's, there's way bigger forces out there. So basically there is this, this globalization that was driven by America. And America gets, um, builds these allies up that are usually the enemies, and then these allies become the enemies again. again. Mm. And uh, he, he has a lot of historic evidence. And what, what, what he's been saying is, you know, you guys all worry too much. Basically, what happens is America is withdrawing from this extreme globalization that America had pushed out. You know, it secured the trading routes, it secured an American standard, it gave everyone plenty of US dollars to trade in, um, we were the reserve currency. But this is over. We, we, nobody cares in the U.S. anymore. So we, we are trying to be, find a way to contract to get, get out of these things like the NATO. Yeah. Well, we, we, we let others fight or squabble. Um, and America is just going to be America and domestic. That seems to be a strong trend. He says since 1994, nobody worried about foreign politics in um, the U.S. anymore. So mm. this is all, all about um, um, being, being a different America. And he says, you know, what, what's interesting is that America, if, if it just has to live with what it has, literally its land mass and the, the existing facilities and the people it has, a kind of nobody could emigrate anymore. They say it's still, these forces will play out quite interesting because Europe has, he has a certain set of arguments. Um, he says Europe will, will look for, for their own way and they will, they will suffer because they, they, they can't protect the trading routes as much and Japan will do well. So he, he mm -hmm. kind of has a whole set of arguments how each country will do. And he says it's completely, and that's the important part, it's pretty much, um, it doesn't really matter what politicians say. It doesn't matter which tyrant comes up where. It doesn't matter the climate um, mm -hmm. change, which might be a big impact on society. Um, but he says these things are pretty predictable that they happen this way. And he has, you know, a lot of history to prove that. And I found mm -hmm. this fascinating. And my learning is sometimes a little bit, you know, once you once you create an economic success story, you have something to go on. Um, mm -hmm. And that was at least true in, 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 in history and in part of history. And most of the time you win the wars if you have an economic success story. If you don't have it, you're on shaky footing. You're going to be mm -hmm. you're going to be in trouble in the next 50 to 100 years. And this is what anyone should really focus on. And obviously with the, with the subset of additional morals um, to, to make life in, in, other, in other places better, but really we should focus more about the domestic economic success. This is what in the end pretty much decides every war. Yeah, but it depends on what your objectives are, doesn't it? I mean, you know, America, sure, exactly. America is the, the richest country on earth, the richest country in history, the richest country there has ever been. So arguably by that, um, set of criteria, it's played that game better than any other nation in history. Uh, is it happy? Are its citizens fulfilled? Um, is it a stable, just and peaceful society? Um, doesn't look like that from the other side of the Atlantic. Um, it looks to us as if it's falling apart. Um, and so certainly on the way up, uh, if you're experiencing growth from a low base, then those economic flows can easily be identified with national success stories. I entirely take the point that the politicians are, rather, are a kind of secondary detail. I, I, I do buy that. 
But what I'm not sure that I buy is that um, the ultimate objective, the aim in all of this, therefore, is to produce as much wealth, to accumulate as much wealth, to be more wealthy by as wide a margin as possible than other countries, because therefore you're doing better. It seems pretty clear that beyond a certain point, you don't do better. Um, and the consolation that you've got a higher GDP per capita than other countries is a rather meager consolation if it doesn't ultimately provide any benefit or any stability or, or anything else. The, the, the difficulty, the problem with all of these economics-based arguments is that they do, as Adam Smith himself and many others pointed out, they do leave out many of the fundamental currencies of what make us human. The fact, for example, that as any fMRI scanner will tell you, we get more pleasure from helping other people than we get from uh, pleasing ourselves. And we get more satisfaction from um, living in peace with our brothers and sisters than we do from being the victors in a conflict. Um, and so uh, that's the reason. It's not because it's not because these underlying economic flow arguments are untrue. It's not because they don't present a credible account of how the world works, but it's because they assume an endpoint that no rational being could possibly share. That's the problem with them. And I think you have to reset the endpoint and say, where is it we're actually trying to get to? Well, I think in, when, when we talk about economic growth, it's not. You know, economic growth is not, in my mind, produced by just getting more gold, right? It is mm -hmm. well, in a sense, in a sense, it is, and and, and I think certainly it doesn't matter if you thirty eight thousand GDP or forty two thousand. Like this is all very relative. It's very difficult to measure, but it doesn't matter if you were one thousand GDP, fifteen thousand, and fifty thousand, right? So there's there's mm -hmm. certainly still is the three worlds out there, the first, second, yeah. and third world. Even if we 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 think this is a little outdated, and I think these these clusters really exist. But I think what what in the core of it, and this is where where I really try to advocate for, is this entrepreneurial idea that turns into innovation, right? So only mm -hmm. the next thing, the thing that we innovate that makes our lives better and that's introduced in, 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 an, in a voluntary basis. So entrepreneurs commercialize it, then it goes through society and people adopt it and they all feel they're all better off, right? That's Adam Smith's mm -hmm. idea. And that I think is the core of this. And innovation almost always leads to like useful innovation that's being adopted by, by, by everyone because then you really see the benefit going through the population. This is at the core of what makes the world a better place. And what, what is this, you wanna raise your, your GDP. Um, I think the only real answer to me, for me is you have to innovate and that innovation must be real innovation, not just, you know, we, we found a patent in the university, but it's an, it's an adopted innovation. And I think this is where my, my claim, and I've been, I think Peter Thiel's claim is so interesting when he says, you know, the last 50 years, we, we, we were, we didn't have outside of semiconductors, we didn't have much innovation. And that's, that's a real problem because it left a lot of people behind. This is where we see the inequality, right? If you're in semiconductors or finance, you have too much money to play with. And everyone else, not everyone, but most of the industries are in trouble. And But that's not what we saw in the 70s. Um, and I think this is where the, where the crux come from. If we get back to this innovative climate and get this transported anywhere on the planet, that this is the highest ideal, how can I, how can I make the world a better place today, myself and my nation state? Then I think we, we fixed it we, we, if, if people really follow this mantra. Yeah. Well, the project that I'm spending most of my time on at the moment is an educational project called The Good Generation, which I also describe in a certain amount of detail in, in the book, um, certainly harmonizes with that view. Um, yeah. Because one of the things that it argues for is that um, children need to be raised with the correct motivations to play the role in society that society needs them to play. 
And, and one of those is emphatically um, learning and understanding the joy of coming up with new stuff, um, solving problems, inventing new ideas, working with others who invent new ideas if you don't do them yourself, and so on and so forth. So um, it's so interesting that almost we, we haven't spoken about education and, and, and any conversation on these kinds of topics that doesn't men mention education is, is, is half a conversation. Because almost whatever um, challenge it is that you're talking about, almost whatever question you're asking, the answer is always education. Um, because, you know, clearly the challenges that we're facing are all caused by the behavior of humans. And clearly, therefore, if you want to change the world, you have to change humanity. And clearly, the only reliable way of changing humanity is through education. So you bring up a generation that's different from the one before it. I mean, sure, you can try your hardest to change adults. But once you get past 30, it's very, very difficult. Um, whereas feeding ideas into children's minds is um, scarily easy. Social yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, not just Socrates knew this, obviously, uh, Lenin knew this, too. And I think they, yes. they both have been successful with that, for better or worse. Mm. And uh, it's, I think what, what's, what's, what's taking over in, in education right now, and I think this is, it's really difficult to see this happening in real time, is that there's on one side, there's this encouragement of creativity is that we, we can personalize the curriculum extremely, right? Listen, literally every single student has a very different uh, curriculum online, right? Because they basically yeah. do their own YouTube curriculum, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but this is what they can do in their, in their spare time, right? But if they, in their, in school, we still have this stuff from a hundred years ago, 60 years oh, sure. ago. And aligning those is, is really tricky because on one hand, you know, I'm kind of get upset when my children, don't get taught properly how to spell at, at least mm -hmm. one language. And I, I do this in four or five languages, right? And I'm like, go to the teacher and say, well, what's going on? You need, you need to make, you need to fix this, right? And mm -hmm. they say, yeah, we, we, we can't, we, we don't want to. Everyone is their own being and it's like this princess. And I'm like, okay, this is really wrong. But on the other hand, if you really focus and want to focus on specialization, then there is no way around customizing the curriculum and spelling in the end isn't a big deal in a world mm -hmm. where we have Grammarly and we have tons of innovations. We don't even, the spelling doesn't, nobody will ever write something by hand ever again, right? So mm -hmm. it, is, it is something I find tricky to, to wrap my mind around is, yes, we need a different change of, in, of in, uh, innovation and that's based on education, but this education looks really weird to me. It looks like people are lazy. And this is really difficult for me to 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 compromise on those. Yeah, well, I think I think there's a there's a revolution in in progress, which is that the the best of the private sector in the educational ecosystem, the most innovative, the most inventive work is being done in the private sector, and it's growing and growing and growing and growing in size, in um, effectiveness and in the amount of interest it's generating. And fairly soon that's going to burst through into the state sector in country after country after country. And some of those lessons will have to be learned by the state sector, which in many countries is still lagging far behind. Um, parents and teachers that I talk to all over the world all complain about the same things. They say that it's all just about passing exams, that there's no, um, there's no emotional intelligence, there's no personal learning journey, they don't teach kids yeah. how to be happy. They don't teach them how to have good relationships. They don't teach them how to use money. They don't teach them how to be entrepreneurs. They don't teach them how to live in society. And from my point of view, they don't teach them how to understand and tackle the grand challenges, the existential challenges facing humanity. So 
Um, I think the, the revolution is a coming and all of the innovation is there in the private sector and it's about to burst through that dam um, because the really, really, really excellent stuff is being done there. Um, what you said just now about uh, children uh, tailoring their own educational experience is absolutely correct. There's a, a, a company in Silicon Valley who um, we're partnering with called Guru, um, who, which was started up by one of the guys who uh, designed Google Maps. And he's basically created this piece of software, which is every child's personal learning map. And it basically asks you some questions to feed in where you are on your learning journey right now. It figures out how much you, you, uh, you know already. You set your destination, which could be, I want to pass this exam, or I want to get this job, or I want to know about this subject. And it does you your, uh, it does you your itinerary. And you can take detours off and learn things on the way if something catches your eye just over the horizon. And it also turns teachers, classroom teachers, into far more effective um, managers of their classroom because instead of just trying to remember who's where and what stage they're at and what their individual challenges or difficulties are, it's all there. This is absolutely revolutionary. So what I'm trying to do with the Good Generation Project um, is I'm trying to see if we can come up with a global consensus on a minimal set of values, virtues, skill sets, learnings, and principles that the whole world agrees would be what we really need our children to have in the next generation. And if we can do that, we're gonna be doing that via a big online global conversation moderated by AI, which is quite useful for those. Uh, I mentioned it before in the, the context of the good country experiment. Um, and then we turn this into some kind of global compact a little bit like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the UN Charter that says, we, the world, agree that irrespective of our religious, cultural, linguistic, historic, geographical, and topological differences, we all agree that these fundamental 16 or 18 values, virtues, and skill sets are all things that we approve of and that we agree that our generation, the next generation needs to learn so that when they leave school, they run towards the global challenges instead of running away from them. And then we yeah, get like agreement that. on that, and and, yeah. and there we go. So that's, that's very the laudable. That's very laudable. Mm -hmm. I think this is this is awesome. I think the the do I feel, and that's my gut feeling. I and I have to learn more about it. You you're way more involved. My gut feeling is that it's relatively easy to, especially in today's world of of, of relatively abstract, and I'm going to say it, virtual signaling people, and that this is not virtual signaling. I'm just saying mm -hmm. it's relatively easy to to find abstract goals everyone signs off on, right? It's like the human rights yeah. um, chapter of the UN that's run by by Iran. And you're like, sure. really? Sure. Um, so this is relatively easy, but breaking it down into what what actually should my child know? And that's, I think self-authoring is, is a wonderful tool. And I think it's it's so powerful. The only problem is it's really scary for the parents because you your kids basically learn only about video games for six months because that's what they want to learn about, right? And you really, you really think, oh man, this, I, this predictability of what my child is going to be by the age 20 is completely out the window. Like everyone is highly customized and some kids are super smart by the age of eight and they're going to fall back and they barely say a word until they're 15. Yeah. To a parent, it's extremely scary. <laughs> I have this yes. personal experience and that's, that's what makes it so hard to make the switch. I think we all instinctively want it as parents, but it's really scary and it's, it's also very unproven right now. So, um, mm -hmm. 
I, I, I'm all for it, right? I'm, 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 I think I, I would love to do it, but I think it's really scary to everyone. And even I consider myself like an early adopter entrepreneur um, in Silicon Valley, but lots of people outside will say, well, this is not what we wanted, right? We, we want a religious education, for instance, or we want my, sure. my, my child to be brought up with these values that I trust, uh, even if I don't yes. understand them fully. So it's very tricky. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, just, just to clarify, um, there are a number of things here that we're not doing. Um, first of all, most importantly, the thing that we're not doing is creating new content that children are going to be taught. I think when you're looking at the kind of values and virtues that make a good society, these are not subjects that can easily be taught directly. There have been yeah. hundreds of experiments over the, over the decades um, by UNESCO and others trying to teach topics like global citizenship or tolerance or, or whatever. It doesn't really work. The kids know that it's not a proper subject. And they also find it quite boring because it's indigestible. You're just pouring moral values into, into their ears. And yep. human beings don't learn under those circumstances. They learn actively. So I believe that the best way for most of these principles to be inculcated in children is within the existing, within real subjects, within um, real school topics. So the kids are still gonna be learning what they have to be learning but we're just going to try and put back in the, the, the value systems of which they are a part in defining. So that's the other thing I wanted to say. I do understand what you mean about it being scary for parents. And that's why it's so very, very important that the parents are major contributors to this whole thing. The conversations we're having are also with parents. And the values and virtues are very, very carefully selected because they reflect the fundamental same set of values and virtues that those parents will find within their religion. We can't endorse teaching religion because we are now a fully globalized society and there isn't a global religion. There are too many of them. So this must by definition be secular. Of course, within countries, countries are free to teach their, their state religion or religions if that's what they want to do. And we don't, wouldn't dream of interfering with it. But you know, of course, because you've looked at these things as an intellectually curious person, that if you open the, the hood on most world religions, you will find the same set of values um, pumping away underneath um, as, uh, as you know, one, from one religion to the other. So although people like to claim um, that there are massive cultural differences between races and nations and religions, actually it's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, I'm an anthropologist by training and one of the things that I've found during my life is that we have a tendency to exaggerate cultural differences for all kinds of reasons. But fundamentally, yeah. we kind of believe in the same basic things. So that's why this isn't difficult. You're right to say that it is, it's relatively easy to get people to sign up to high sounding uh, compacts. Then whether they actually um, stick to them or not is another matter indeed. But you know, if we had another two hours, I could explain exactly how we propose to do that. <laughs> Um, I know we're we're very, we're short on time, and I, I I think it's 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 already so illuminating. We covered so much. It's just one more thing that I wanted to cover, and maybe have a very brief answer. I still have this hope for for a meta religion. You know, something we just talked about. I feel and this is my personal um, opinion after studying all the Abrahamic um, religions in, in, in really um, core detail, and um, also looked into into a few others, um, but not as deeply. I feel there is a meta religion out there that we can all agree on. And those, this literally, we go back to, as you just said, maybe 20, 30, relatively mm -hmm. small number of, of like 
human aspiration, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that nobody has, I'm, I'm sure people have done it, but nobody has popularized it enough. It never really took off, but maybe someone can do it. I still have that hope. Do you think that's possible? Have you checked out Baha'i? I, yes, but only only from the surface level. Yeah, well, Baha'i is, is one of the more successful experiments in trying to come up with um, a broad set of commonly accepted precepts and principles that don't clash yeah. with any of the major um, other religions. Um, I thought they're very Buddhist. That was my my knowledge so far. Maybe I'm wrong. Say again, sorry? I thought they're very Buddhist-inspired. Uh, no, not really. Okay. Not really, no. Um, I mean, th there, there, there are some aspects of Baha'i which are, um, which are recognizably similar to, to Buddhism, but that's not where it comes from. Okay. That's, that's very interesting. I want to check that out. Well, Simon, yeah. thank you for taking the time. Um, thanks for doing this. It was very illuminating. We covered so much. Um, it was a really yeah. fascinating discussion. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thanks I again. It. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Same here. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. See you soon. All right. Talk soon. Bye now.